Welcome to Hope Denver. My name is Ike Shepherdson. I'm one of the pastors here. Oh man, this is, this is so much fun to do this. I'm so glad you guys are a part of it. This is such a pleasure to be doing Hope Denver. We're a baby church. Oh my gosh, we're a baby church and we're so excited that you're a part of it. Uh, uh, thanks for being here. Um, our hope is that you have a chance to meet Jesus at Hope Denver and to find that he can change your life. Just a quick reminder to vote this Tuesday. Make sure you do that. If you haven't already, go to justvotecolorado.org and make sure you vote uh, in keeping with all of my personal preferences. I'd appreciate that. It's your duty, though, to be, as a follower of Jesus, it's your duty to vote. Make sure you do that. Be prayerfully involved in that process. Just a reminder to you. But lately, we've started a series at Hope Denver called Culture. Culture. We're talking about the way of Jesus. What does it look to live like somebody who's modeled their lives after Jesus' life. What kind of life did he live? What kind of person was he? What was he getting at with his character, with the way that he lived? That's what we're all about. Uh, if you haven't caught all of the, the messages so far in the series, uh, you can go to, to HopeDenver.com and catch the podcast. My wife, Kelsey Shepherdson, you gotta give me a little shout out for her. She preached last week. She killed it. Oh my gosh, she killed it, nailed it to the wall, and told us all that it was there, and it was awesome. So make sure you listen to her message. It was awesome. What a mighty woman of God and a powerful word. So what we're talking about in this series of culture is the life that Jesus led. What was important to him? What did he do for people, and what was the kind of life that he calls his followers to live? See, Jesus calls us to encounter God. And that's what we're focusing on today, encountering God. He, he also, he calls us to belong in community and to serve other people. And tonight we're talking about encountering God. Uh, please turn to Mark 1 in your Bible. If you're new to the Bible, Mark is about three quarters of the way in. You can, of course, download the Bible app and follow that way as well. Mark chapter 1. See, we believe this idea of encountering God. We believe that you can actually experience God. Has anybody experienced God before? Yeah, we believe that you can actually experience God. You can actually talk to God. You can have an encounter with God. And it's bigger than, like, seeing the work of an artist and saying, like, oh, yeah, I'm experiencing the artist. It's bigger than that. It's bigger than having emotions, although it includes that as well. It's bigger than all that stuff. You know, encountering God is different than, like, having nuggets fever <laughs> or having, like, the Christmas spirit. It's a different kind of thing. And when I said Christmas spirit, there are some of you who are far too happy about the Christmas music that's being played in public lately, and the Starbucks cups that are now, that are now come out, you're way too happy about this. And some of our coffee friends here would say, you're not drinking good coffee anyway, so uh, you can repent and believe the good news that there's good coffee out there. The rest of you have come to believe the truth, of course, that Christmas season begins after Thanksgiving, and you are blessed for believing that. Uh, public, uh, public speaking pro tip, do not alienate half of your audience right at the beginning of your talk. Don't do that. Uh, but encountering God is bigger than having the Christmas spirit, right? See, followers of Jesus believe that you can actually know the Christ behind Christmas, that you can experience the king behind the kingdom, that you can be saved by the Savior, and that you can cultivate a relationship with the one that cultivated your soul in the first place. And in this gospel, according to Mark, where we're going to look today, we're introduced to God in the man, Jesus. And what we're going to focus on is that encountering God means receiving God's kingdom through turning from sin 
and turning to Jesus. Let's read Mark chapter 1. This is verse 1 and following, and this is God's word. The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. Seems like a pretty cool guy. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. At that time, Jesus of Nazareth in Galilee came and, and, was, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness. He was in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by Satan. He was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Tonight we're focusing on how encountering God means receiving God's kingdom and turning from sin and turning to Jesus. Let's bow our heads. God, we open our hearts to you today, and we're willing to receive what you might say to us. If you agree with that, just say, God, I'm willing. I'm open. I'm willing to hear from you today. God, we don't want to be people who just come and experience a religious service. We want the real deal. And we believe that we have it with you, Jesus. So speak to us today. We're open to you. In Christ's name, amen. So when we're reading th this gospel according to Mark, what, what we just read here, I'll tell you a little bit about this book. The gospels in the Bible are really, they're biographies of Jesus, but they're different than like kind of modern Western biographies. They're a little bit more theological, and they're not concerned with like scientific precision or chron chronological accuracy. You'll find that when you read the gospels, there's different orders of events. It's perfectly normal in the ancient world for that kind of thing to happen. But the audience of this particular gospel was primarily Gentile. That really just means that they were non-Jewish. These were people who didn't have a Jewish background. And they were maybe living in Rome or someplace like Rome where people who believed in Jesus were being persecuted for that belief. Often their property was being confiscated. A lot of them were, were, were being thrown in prison. They probably knew people who died because they believed in Jesus. Uh, these are people who were, who were struggling because they had this religious conviction that Jesus is God. Now, the story in Mark's gospel moves really quickly. It's really quickly. It's because there's an agenda behind it. It's a theological biography, remember. It's getting you to the cross. It's getting you to when Jesus dies on Good Friday and he's risen from the dead on Easter Sunday. It moves really fast to get you there. Now, the person who's writing it, this is kind of interesting, a man named Mark. Probably didn't guess that. He was probably an associate of Peter, one of Jesus' followers. It was likely that Peter used Mark to be a scribe to write down Peter's own remembrances about Jesus' life. Now, if you want to read more details about Jesus' life, of course, I would recommend 
read one of the other Gospels as well. Uh, if you're new to the Bible and you're like, I don't really read the Bible, that's not my thing, or you'd be like, why do people read this ancient document? I would suggest you start with one of the Gospels. Start with the book of John. It's a wonderful place to get to know Jesus, to learn a little bit more about him. But in this Gospel, there's an emphasis on recognizing who Jesus is. Are you willing to see something different for the first time? Are you willing to notice something different than what you noticed before? And when you see Jesus, when you hear the kinds of things that he said, you see what he does, are you going to respond with anger or with fear? Or are you going to respond with faith? That's the emphasis in this gospel. And of course, today, we're looking at these first 15 verses, where we learn that encountering God means receiving God's kingdom and turning from sin and turning to Jesus. Let's look at verse 1. Verse 1 says this, The beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. This is the beginning. This is interesting. It's actually similar to the book of Genesis, which is at the beginning of the Bible. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, there's a story of how everything got going. And the first few words of the book of Genesis are, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you get this same idea here, that just like God was beginning to create something, that now he's beginning to recreate something. He's beginning to restore something. That what God's plans are, are coming to fruition. And this is just the beginning. How is he going to do this? How is God going to restore things and remake things? Well, you're going to have to see. We'll get there. <laughs> and it says it's the beginning of the good news. The good news. This word, the good news, is actually the, the word gospel. If you've heard gospel, sometimes when people hear the word gospel, they may have like different things that come into their mind, maybe a style of music, or maybe like a preacher who says, the gospel, right? And uh, you can laugh at weird things like that. I just do those kinds of things. Uh, you, when you hear this word gospel, it means good news. But gospel had, a, had another connotation for these original listeners, people who were listening to this book being read. See, the gospel was also a good announcement or a good message. Gospels were things in the Roman world, the world of the Bible, that they celebrated the birth of a Roman emperor. Gospels sometimes celebrated the victory of a king in battle, but often they celebrated the fact that, that an emperor was born. That's because in the Roman world, people worshipped the emperor. They believed that the emperor was a god. And so a gospel was an announcement that this god brings good news to the whole world. Emperor worship was established probably among the people that were listening to this book when it was first being read. We know this from a number of ancient sources. Uh, but most poignantly, we know this from, the, from ruins in the city of, of, uh, um, of Prien on Turkey's western coast. You can see the city of Prien here. Uh, in the city, there's some ruins, and there's, you can read a calendar inscription. And on this calendar inscription, you can put this up here, it's it tells the birth of Caesar Augustus. And it, because Caesar Augustus was considered a god, his birthday signaled the beginning of good news for the whole world, is what this inscription says. So people who are listening to this are immediately getting the sense that there is a different god who brings the good news. This is a different gospel, and it's over and against any other gospel. What these people are, are reading here is Mark saying, this is actually the true king that you're about to learn about. And these people were likely being persecuted because they didn't believe in the Caesar gospel. They believed in the Jesus gospel. Jesus' godhood 
meant that Caesar was no god at all. So they didn't join in on the emperor worship. Now the good news in verse 1 here, it says it's the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Messiah. The story that you're about to hear about Jesus the Messiah, and Messiah means something like anointed one, somebody who's set apart for a special task. Uh, it's good news for the whole world. This is a different kind of God king. The fact that there is a gospel about him is good news to the Gentiles because he's the true God and the true king. And it's good news to the Jews because he's the Messiah that Jews had been waiting for. He's someone who could restore justice and peace to the whole world. Do you see why people in my position would say this is good news? Restoring justice and peace to the whole world. Isn't that a wonderful message? That's a good announcement. It's good news. Look at verse 2. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. See, Mark believed that the story of Jesus was continuous with what God was already doing among the people of Israel. He was saying that what God was doing back then, he's still doing now. And so he quotes this old prophet, this man named Isaiah. He quotes this, this part in the Hebrew Bible. And this part in the Hebrew Bible, from, from the, book, the book of Isaiah, says that there's going to be somebody who goes ahead of God's chosen one. Somebody who goes ahead as a messenger. He's going to come and he's going to call people to make straight paths for the Lord. And you get the sense already that encountering God requires something of people. It says make straight paths for him. It requires that rocky places are smoothed out. It requires that, that windy roads are straightened out. It means that if you're going to receive God, you can't just go in and be like, well, whatever I am is whatever I am and I'm not changing. It requires something of you. Now, Jesus does not come to affirm everything about how you live your life. Instead, Jesus' coming is a call for you to follow his way of life. Look at verse 4. And so, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. It's saying that John the Baptist is this messenger. He's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John, we actually know this from Luke's gospel, one of the other gospels, was Jesus' cousin. And John slowly recognizes, he has kind of a slow recognition that Jesus is actually sent from God to inaugurate a whole new time of God's redemption. And so what, is, what does John preach? He preaches a baptism for the repentance and forgiveness of sins. See, the biblical perspective on reality is different from how most people in our culture look at morality. The biblical perspective on morality is this, that humanity has, has sins that need to be forgiven by God. It's just a different way of thinking about it. Humanity has sin that needs to be forgiven by God. Now, sometimes this concept of sin in our culture is unpopular. Uh, you might have been exposed to people who, who would say this. Maybe you've thought this yourself. That Christians just want people to feel guilty about everything. Right? Um, but this, this, this idea that, Christ, that, that people are guilty before God, they need to be forgiven, doesn't mean that God wants you to have these overwhelming guilt feelings. 
Um, the only way that we can make sense of the fact that we have moral outrage is to acknowledge that sin is a real thing. If, you, if you've ever been outraged by something in the world, you've ever said, hey, that's not right, then you already believe in the concept of sin. You just haven't had this theological word attached to it. Moral outrage makes no sense without the idea of sin. Uh, this, is, this is the idea that we, we look at, at things around us that are ugly. And it can be little things like gossip or passive aggressiveness. Or it can be big things like racism, sexual assault, and harassment. We can look at the cultural conditions that enable these kinds of evils. We can, we can look at violence, especially towards the unborn. We can look at murder and terrorism. And we have moral outrage. So we have this kind of moral outrage. Well, what makes sense of that? If there's no such thing as sin, then moral outrage is ridiculous. It's never legitimate. Because who are you to judge that something else is wrong? However, the Christian perspective on reality simply acknowledges that, that, th that there are real evils in the world. Now, not all psychological guilt is legitimate. But we often do have true moral guilt. But if we have forgiveness from God, then we don't need to have, like, residual psychological guilt. See, God can deliver you from your actual sins, and he can save you from those guilt feelings that stick around later on. See, this is what God does. He saves people. He does new things. And the way to find this kind of forgiveness in John's baptism was to repent. Repentance. Repentance is a word that just means something like having a change of heart or a change of mind. But literally, it means turning away from sin and turning to God. That you have something that changes deep inside you where you say, I just want what God has now. The thing is, is that if you're going to repent, it requires humility and a willingness to say that you don't have it all figured out. And I think this is a good question for all of us. Are you in a place where you're willing to admit that you don't have it all figured out? that maybe you're in need of change as well. And if you're honest about that, then you might just encounter God. See, baptism here, it's a sign of cleansing. So John calls people to come and be baptized. And they literally go under the water and come back up. And it's a sign of having been cleansed of your sin. Just like being dipped in water cleanses you of, of any like dirt on your body, being cleansed by God means that you're cleansed of all of your sin and all of your guilt. You need to be cleansed, but the cleansing is so great that when you, when you come to encounter God in baptism, you're inaugurated and welcomed into a whole new way of life. Baptism, then, is a kind of initiation. It's where you can say, like, I'm going to follow Jesus because I've been cleansed by him. It's a pretty cool thing. Look at verse 6. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. John recognizes something really important here. He recognizes that there's a deep inequity in terms of worthiness when you encounter God. Uh, this reinforces the kind of humility that you need to have to be a follower of Jesus. He's saying... I'm not even worthy to untie this guy's sandals. That you guys look to me as if I'm some kind of important person, John might say, but this guy who's coming after me, he's way more important. I can't even untie his sandals. See, we're in a culture 
where people are told all the time that you deserve things. But what John is saying is that this guy is coming, and I'm not worthy to receive him, and yet he's coming. Something that I don't deserve is happening. But we're in a culture that tells us that we're entitled to all kinds of things. But receiving God is a gift. It's a gift. In our culture, you're told that you're entitled to happiness. You're entitled to do you. Be the best you. You're entitled to freedom. You're entitled to health care. You're entitled to education. But the message here is saying that the most important things in life are not something that you can earn and you're not worthy of. The most important things in life are things that are given to you as a gift. If you're going to encounter God, it's going to be on his terms, and his terms are to offer you a gift. It's a wonderful thing. So what, what happens? John starts baptizing people here. And bapti- baptism literally means submersion in water, but it's also a submersion in the actual presence of God. Did you notice what he says? He says, I'm baptizing you in water. I'm going to submerge you in water, but there's going to be somebody who's going to come after me who's going to submerge you in the very presence of God. And this is where, if you don't come at this from the Christian perspective of, on reality, you're going to say, what on earth are you talking about? How can I be dipped and submerged in God's presence? And I'm giving you permission to think that that's a little strange. But think about this for just a minute. If you were created to have a, per- a perfect relationship with God, if that's why you exist, if he's indeed your creator, if he made you, and if he made you more to, to be more than just a meat machine, if he made you to be more than just a physical body that goes through change, that is born, lives a life, and dies, then maybe you can actually have his presence living in you as well. See, if you're willing to put on the Christian glasses on reality for just a quick minute, this makes perfect sense. If God made you, of course he made you to be able to experience him. So you're going to be submerged in God. You can experience God's spirit. Look at verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, this is interesting. Why would Jesus be baptized? Um, Jesus' followers, Christian theologians, have always believed that Jesus never sinned. So Jesus doesn't really require repentance and forgiveness, right? Does he require cleansing that baptism symbolizes? Not, not really. But there's, there's an important aspect of what Jesus is doing here. Jesus' message is that you can repent and believe the good news, but he also models a way of life for you. The way of life uh, uh, the, that Jesus lived is something that he's saying, be like this. And in fact... Later in Jesus' life, he commands all of his followers to be baptized. He says, I want you all to be baptized. This is from the book of Matthew 28, uh, 19 and following. And it says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. See, he's modeling this here. He's showing you, here's how you walk in my way. Here's how you do it the right kind of way. Come and be like me, is what he's saying. He wants you to be welcomed into God's family, and baptism is a sign of that initiation. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, if you've said, yes, I I believe in Jesus, I believe in God, there's actually an invitation here to be baptized in water. 
consider yourselves invited at Hope Denver to be baptized in water. We're, uh, if you would like to do that, or if you, even if you just like to talk about it, because you're like, hey, this idea of like getting wet in front of people is not really my thing, I would love to have a conversation with you. What I'd ask you to do is on the connect card that's on your seat, would you mind just like writing your name on there and write baptism? I'll call you and we'll have a conversation. No pressure if you don't want to do it. But it is a command from Jesus. You need to do it. So there's a little bit of pressure. It's from him, not from me. Okay, there you go. <laughs> write this on your connect card, though. We're going to do some baptisms here pretty soon. Look at verse 10. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. In these verses, you get a picture of the Trinity. Christians have this idea that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's not a contradiction like three equals one. That's not what the Trinity is. It's more like three in one. That there's one being who eternally exists in three persons. There are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who together are the Godhead. They are God. Right? And they're not one-third God. They're fully God, each of them. But it's saying that, that well, all Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all present here. But this is actually similar to Genesis as well. Think back to Genesis, creation of the world. In the book of Genesis, it says that, that God created the heavens and the earth. And we learn that the earth was created through the sun. This is something that the scriptures teach us. So Jesus, the sun, creates the, creates the world. But it's the Father who speaks and the Father first speaks the words, let there be light. And that's the first act of God's creation in the world. And when God says this, there's also the Holy Spirit who's hovering over the waters. You see that in the book of Genesis. And you see that here in Mark too. The, the redemption is happening through the Son. God's plan to recreate the, word, the, the world is happening through Jesus. But the Father speaks and says, this is what I'm doing. And the Holy Spirit hovers over Jesus. He descends, and he's participating in that. And this sign is really just confirming that Jesus is indeed the Messiah, the Son of God. Look at verse 12. At once the Spirit sent him out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan. Uh, he was with the wild animals, and angels attended him. The wilderness probably wouldn't have been like a fun place to hang out. It's not like, oh, cool, and then Jesus like got a little outdoorsy for a little while. It was actually probably a really tough place. Uh, the wild animals were probably like the kinds of wild animals that would want to eat somebody who was like lost in the desert, okay? Um, but here's what this is, this is talking about. Think back again into the story that, that comes through the Hebrew Bible, and it's okay if you don't know all of it. But in the story that, that comes through the Hebrew Bible, there's a people that God sets apart for himself. They're the people of Israel. And the people of Israel, they're enslaved in Egypt. And God saves them, and he takes them into the wilderness. Now, through their own disobedience, they're in the wilderness for 40 years. And what this is saying is that Jesus, he's led into the wilderness as well by God. But he has success in 40 days. He was tempted by Satan, but he doesn't give in. Just like they failed it in 40 years, he succeeds in 40 days. So for Mark's hearers, the people who are listening to this gospel being read, they would have heard this and they would have immediately identified with what was happening here because they were living in a kind of wilderness. Mark's hearers were living in the wilderness of Roman persecution to where if you were a follower of Jesus and you were willing to say that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not, 
then your property could be confiscated, you could be thrown in prison, you could be killed for that confession. They were living in that kind of wilderness. So there's a subtext for these listeners here, continue to be faithful. And if you're a recent convert, if you recently decided to follow Jesus, if it's been recent that it's the first time where you've said, God, I believe in you, Jesus, I want to follow you, then you should expect persecution as well. I'm not saying that to scare you. I'm saying that if you have had persecution, then you're doing it right. This is how it goes for God, and Jesus is modeling it here. He's saying that if you can, if you can, if you can stand through the persecution, you'll come out on the other side successful. Look at verse 14. You can see how this is moving really fast, right? The story's like all these things happening really quickly. Not my sermon. You might think that that's moving slow, but you'll get over it. Look at verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. So Jesus goes into Galilee. Galilee is, in the, is north of the Roman province, province of Judea, which is, on, uh, which is on the eastern Mediterranean. So you have Judea and you have Galilee. In between them is Samaria, if you're ever interested in where that stuff is. So Jesus goes into Galilee, but this is significant. Because the people in Galilee had a very strong national identity. They had this idea that we are true Jews. Unlike the Samaritans who lived to their south, the Galileans thought we are the real deal. It was blood and soil for them. They believed that, hey, we're, we're God's real followers up here. We're the true people of God. But when Jesus preaches the good news about God, you'll discover as you read through the book of Mark that this is a kind of good news that's for Jews and for Gentiles, for non-Jews. It's for everybody. This is a good thing. It's for all people. This is, a, this is a good thing to remember. What God is doing, anyone can receive it. Anyone can receive it. It's for you. It's for me. It's for the rich. It's for the poor. It's for anyone who's willing to receive it. I think a good question is, are you willing to receive it? Be changed by it. Well, what is this good news? What's this good news of God? Look at verse 15. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The kingdom of God is the good news that Jesus preaches. The kingdom of God. That's what he's preaching about. And the kingdom of God, what it does is it refers to God's actual authority and power being exercised on the earth. The kingdom of God is not just kind of a private religious feeling. The kingdom of God is God saying, I'm coming to make things right again. I'm going to change the world that you live in, the actual world, not just the private spiritual world, but the actual world will be changed by my authority and by my power. So Jesus says, the time has come. This has to do with the fact that Jesus' life inaugurates God's recreation of the world. It all starts here, is what he's saying. But Jesus also says this, the kingdom of God has come near. There's an aspect of God's kingdom that's here and it's close, but there's also an aspect of God's kingdom that is not quite yet here. It's coming, but it's not quite yet here. So in Jesus, you're seeing God starting to redeem the world, but that redemption is not yet completed. And if you look at the world today, you can see this at play. If you think critically about the world you live in for just a second, think you can see this in play. 
You see glimpses of God's kingdom breaking in. You see wonderful things happening in our world today. And yet you see wretched, terrible things. You see brokenness, incredible gaps in which God's authority has not fully come yet. You can see this if you look at China. The Chinese Communist Party confiscates churches and it imprisons and abuses Christian leaders. But you also have 100 million Chinese Christians who meet regularly despite their persecution and they confess that our God is the king and the state is not. That's the incoming of God's kingdom. You see this in our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters. And they're struggling under the weight of the systemic evil and the priest abuse scandal. They're struggling under this systemic evil. But there are Roman Catholics all over the world who are crying out to Jesus and they're asking for a new reformation right now. Roman Catholics are crying out to God saying, God, save us, reform the church and change us. You may even see this in your own heart, if you're honest. Perhaps God's done something powerful in your life, but there's still some places in which you can see there's work yet to be done. It's not done yet. It's not finished yet. Maybe you still wander in sin, but there's good news. The good news is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is this good news. And it comes through when Jesus first starts preaching. In his first sermon, he says this in the book of Luke. He says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. That's good news. The kingdom of God is good news. In a prophecy about Jesus, written hundreds of years before he, he was born, the prophet Isaiah writes, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his, on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. This is good news. The kingdom of God is good news. Amen? Do you believe it? The kingdom of God is good news. In a world where those who have money and power live above the law, God says the first will be last and the last will be first. That's good news. The kingdom of God is good news. In a world of suffering and sadness, Jesus promises in the book of Revelation to wipe every tear away from our eyes. The kingdom of God is good news. You see the brokenness and despair in the world, and God says, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the good news of God. This is what he's doing. But this is only good news if you're willing to receive it. So how do you receive it? You need to repent. That's what Jesus says. You need to repent. Look at verse 15 again. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news. Repentance, remember, means having a change of heart or a change of mind. And what you do is you need to recognize your own sin before God. You need to recognize that I'm not okay on my own. And I have done some of the things that I hate the most. You have to be willing to be changed by God's love, though. You have to be willing to turn. You need transformation. See, some people, they just want to be comforted by the thought that God exists. And if that's you, I'm not trying to make you feel badly, but maybe that's all that you want. Unfortunately, that's not enough. You need to repent. Some people, they just love having a feeling of transcendence. 
They love having kind of spiritual feelings. This is why in our culture people talk about, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. But being spiritual is not enough. You need to repent. If you're looking for a feeling of peace or a transcendent experience, you can look elsewhere. Encountering Jesus requires transformation. And of course, there's peace in following God. There's goodness and joy and love. There's restoration. There's true comfort in following God. But it requires you to just say yes, to turn away from the way that you've lived and to turn to him. You have to be all in. You can't play it safe. Encountering God is a call to repent and believe the good news. I'll invite you to stand right now, and if the worship team would come forward. Encountering God. Encountering God means receiving God's kingdom through turning from sin and turning to Jesus. What I'd like to do in, in this kind of time where we close out the service, uh, we're going to be here for a few more minutes, but I just want to give you an opportunity to respond. Now, here's the thing is, I don't think that I'm better than you. So what I'd like to ask you to do is to join me in my act of repentance. I want to ask you if you'd be willing to join me and recognize that I have things in my life that I need to turn from and I need to turn back to God. I'm going to do this right now. And I'd like to welcome you to do it too. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to... Uh, the worship team is going to lead us in a, in a time of, of musical worship, of singing. But if you recognize that there's something in your life where you say, I want to turn away from that and turn to Jesus, I'd like to welcome you to come up to the front, and all we're going to do is we're going to get on our knees before God. Now, we're not going to stay just in that attitude of sadness because we're going to talk about how God actually pronounces your forgiveness when we do this. He pronounces my forgiveness as well. But there's some of you you need to repent of the sin of pride. You never think that you're wrong. Or maybe that's kind of your default feeling when you're challenged. Pride. I've got it. I'll figure it out. That's my thing to deal with. It's on me. I'm responsible. I've got it. Some of you, you need to, re you need to repent of pride. Some of you, you need to repent of lust. You turn other people into, into objects for your own pleasure with your eyes. You objectify other people with your thoughts. You need to repent of that. Some of you need to repent of your fear. Fear is a way of controlling God. It's saying, I want to hold on to my control over the things that I'm most concerned about losing. You need to repent of fear. Some of you need to repent of the need to be in charge. Some of you need to repent of not trusting God. Some of you need to repent of not being willing to serve God. You want to experience him, but you don't want to serve him. It's time to repent. Some of you have made a relationship in your life, your God. That you actually have a relationship with somebody else, and that is your God. That's the thing that you care about most. You're effectively worshiping that relationship. It's time to repent. Some of you do that with political causes. It's time to repent. Don't make politics your God. Only God can be your God. Maybe you're guilty of a sexual sin or of drunkenness or drug abuse. Today's a day where we're going to repent together. So I just would welcome you to come to the front while we do this. And I'll start, so you don't have to come just yet. I'll start, and I'll be the first one on my knees. 
The good news is for all these things I'm asking you to repent of, and Jesus is the one who's asking you this. The good news about all these things is that when Jesus was enthroned as king, when the kingdom of God is inaugurated, do you know what Jesus' enthronement as king looked like? He was nailed to a Roman cross, and in his death, he forgives you of all of your sins. Jesus is a different kind of king. He's the kind of king that when you come to kneel before him, he's making a way for you to do that. His act of enthronement was his own death on a Roman cross, and he was risen from the dead to give you new life so that you don't have to stay in your sin. Do you see how this is good news? This is the announcement of the true king and the true gospel. But we have to repent.